This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. While Justin Trudeau is way out in front in voter support across the GTA, his liberal re-election bid nationwide is losing support. The results of a leger survey on voter intentions out this past Tuesday are not good news for Justin Trudeau. According to leger, his liberals had fallen to 30% support versus the Aaron O'Toole Conservatives, who were at 34% support. The Jugmeet Singh New Democrats were also gaining with 24% support. Our strategy panelists joined Jane on Tuesday to discuss. Here are former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister Charles Souza, Variety Village CEO Karen Stintz, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner at Fleischman Hiller High Road. I think the voters are starting to starting to check in and uh, and realize that there is an election, and I think they're still t- kind of questioning themselves and trying to question the leaders as to why we're in an election. I think that's starting to uh, permeate around there. And I think that the first couple of weeks of the election campaign, um, you know, the Liberals have have failed to define why this election should be happening and and notwithstanding that of course but the the tragedy that's been happening in afghanistan um has completely taken the liberals off message uh and and you've seen not only from the other leaders quite rightly saying you know why are we doing this Uh, you know you've known about afghanistan or the threats of afghanistan for months um and knowing that the u.s were going to pull out at at all you know by the end of the month and all this why would you want to call an election but then you're also getting people uh, Afghans who have made it here to Canada pointing their finger to Justin Trudeau. So all of that messaging uh, is, is you know, getting the, pr- the Prime Minister off message with respect to what he wants to do and why he wants to say that there's an election, not least of which, of course, the, the fourth wave and, and what's happening. And then, of course, in British Columbia with the fault forest fires, there's such a host of issues that are happening. And Canadians are starting to say, well, why are we in this election? Why can't the Prime Minister just, you know, call Parliament back, you know, not call the election, but call, call Parliament back and, and, and pass legislation that he's been passing for the last two years. And I think that's causing a huge amount of problems with, uh, with, this, uh, with the Liberal leader. Karen, what do you see uh, two weeks and a, I guess two weeks and one day into this campaign? Well, it's funny, Jane, like, you know, you know as, as John said, elections matter. And elections are, are funny processes, uh, which Charles will attest to as well, in that, um, you know, people, when people tune in and when the direction is set, it, it, it shifts depending on what, what election you're in. And, and what I'm seeing is that people are actually, to John's point, paying attention. In some of the backyard discussions I've been having, people are really interested in this election and why it's being called. And there is not a sense that people are going to vote uh, based on the performance of the government during the pandemic, but they're going to be voting on issues that are in front of us, not behind us. And there's a real sense that um, the, the trepidation they may have had towards Aaron O'Toole as a leader by not knowing him, not knowing what he stands for. Um, some of that is actually shifting in the public perception and, and we're seeing that in the polls and the way that he's come out and run his campaign. And there's, there's, 
to the question of, you know, what is this campaign and how is it shaping up? It's actually shaping up much earlier than I thought it would. Um, I thought it would be pretty open until after the debates, perhaps. After Labor Day was when the campaign would really kick off. But now I'm wondering if the vote doesn't actually get locked in sooner than that. And that we see that as long as there's no major missteps, that the momentum will continue uh, in the way it's been going. Interesting. Charles, what do you think at this point? Yeah, I'm in agreement with the other two, actually. I mean, uh, there's a malaise right now in, in summer months, and people are tired, and people really don't want an election from all points. But at the same time, those that are engaged are voting early. Mm. And they don't, you know, this is going to happen quick. And, and there's some real issues to resolve. And I'm in agreement with all. I want to look forward. I want to know what each of them are going to do as we move ahead. And, of course, in Justin's argument for, or the prime minister's argument for having an election now is because it's before things get back in gear when we need to fight inflation and continue to fight COVID and look for recovery of those of the economy. We have a lot of jobs out there, but we need, of course, to do more. There's other challenges before us. And it has been challenging in a minority government, and he's trying to get a majority in order to move those things ahead, and that's his argument. But, of course, a lot of people aren't buying that at this point, and there's a lot of mudslinging, and it's not coming from mm-hmm. party leaders, which is important here, because I think this people are going to look for a progressive, more positive tone, and unfortunately, there's a lot of poison out there around the Trudeau rallies. It's very disruptive. Um, and I, you know, I got to tell you, O'Toole's been handling himself effectively by denouncing those. And that actually looks good on him. Former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister Charles Souza, Variety Village CEO Karen Stintz, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. Fightbacks Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. The day after the Ford government unveiled its vaccine passport policy. Libby got reaction from Ontario's Liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca, as well as the business and medical communities. Lindsay Broadhead, Senior Vice President, Communications and Public Affairs at the Toronto Region Board of Trade. Donna Dewar, co-owner of Mildred's Temple Kitchen here in Liberty Village. And Dr. Alon Vaisman, Epidemiologist, Infectious Diseases Specialist at Toronto's University Health Network. I'm encouraged that Doug Ford has now seen the light and has decided that Ontario belatedly will have a vaccine certificate. I am still really concerned, though, about a couple of things. One is that it's going to take weeks before it's fully deployed, especially the second part of what he announced yesterday, not being ready until the end of October. And I'm also concerned that there seems to be a little bit of confusion around who it will apply to and under what circumstances. All of this tells me that there wasn't enough forethought or planning done by by Doug Ford and his government, which is a real shame because, again, not just me, all the opposition parties, leaders and stakeholders in so many critically important areas, uh, what we see in BC and Quebec and elsewhere, this has been, this should have been in the works for weeks, if not months. And I feel like we're scrambling in this province because Doug Ford was kind of stubborn on this one. So encouraged, but still really concerned. Lindsay Broadhead, the Board of Trade, has been out in front asking for vaccine passports. Is this what you are asking for? It is an important first step. Uh, so in that regard, uh, we're, we feel content that the government is moving in the right direction. Um, and, and you're right, this is something that we've been waving the flag for um, for nearly two months now. 
um, both behind the scenes and, and as public facing as we could possibly be. Um, so it, it's an important first step, um, but we, we certainly hope there's more to come. I hope not to um, <laughs> rainbows and unicorns, uh, as my kids would say, but at the end of the day, we should all be in this together, fighting COVID together. Um, and that's the only way that we're going to get through this. The, the greater we divide, the quicker we're going to fall. Let's bring in Dr. Vaisman. From a doctor's point of view, what do you think of this? I think uh, it's a good start. Um, as, as was mentioned, there's still more that needs to be done in order to make the system work better and also to consider other settings where uh, vaccination would be necessary. The important thing, to, one of the important limitations to note with this is that it doesn't apply to the employees of these uh, places, that it applies to the people who are patrons. So the restaurants, the bars, the nightclubs, sports fitnesses, it's just the patrons. So, I mean, it, it's a good start, but you know, there's some high-risk areas and some other features which would be nice to see. The thing is, is that, of course, this measure can provide protection for people because you're mandating vaccination, protecting staff, protecting patrons. But the other, of course, measure or the other effect of this kind of measure is that it encourages vaccination, you'd hope, from individuals who want to participate in these activities. So those who are sitting on the fence, you know, you'd bring them over to convince them to be vaccinated. So I think every business owner needs to look at their own setting and think about what this measure doesn't apply, like the, the, the staff vaccination, and think about all those variables that you mentioned earlier and, and think about the risks uh, associated with their specific business setup. Donna Dewar, uh, you are a restaurant owner, which means you're going to be the person implementing this. Uh, how is it going to work for you? I'm very pleased that the government's taken these first steps. I do think there's still a lot of uh, gray areas that will need to be sorted. Our concern, of course, is if you want to eat on the patio, you don't need to show the passport. If you want to eat inside, you do. Uh, that That's going to create issues for sure. The policing part of it, I do think most people in Ontario are, are pleased with this step, so I don't foresee a lot of issues. We've managed to navigate through the masking issues, and I think we'll, we will be ready for that. Uh, those challenges, if they present themselves, in the restaurant, but a very valid point, and that is our staff. Uh, we are currently taking a look at our policy about having all of our staff uh, vac- fully vaccinated. Uh, certainly makes great sense that if your customers are, so should your staff. Provincial Liberal Leader Stephen Del Duca, Lindsay Broadhead, Senior Vice President, Communications and Public Affairs at the Toronto Region Board of Trade, Donna Dewar, co-owner of Mildred's Temple Kitchen in Liberty Village, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, Epidemiologist, Infectious Diseases Specialist at Toronto's University Health Network. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. Coming up after the break, an expert's take on the latest Ontario COVID modelling numbers. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The latest modeling numbers from the Ford government's science advisors shows that in a worst-case scenario, daily cases could exceed 9,000 sometime in October. Mid-level projection shows cases around 4,000 daily by that time. In a lower-range scenario, daily cases would be around or below 500. 
To achieve this, we'd have to raise the number of fully vaccinated Ontarians and decrease our contacts. To discuss, Libby spoke with a member of the science advisory table, Dr. Gerald Evans. We've got a worst-case scenario, which uh, in most of the modeling that we've ever done on the table has never been uh, happened, but that's where things could go if people really don't do their part. And uh, I think the positive message I see is that in the past when we've seen these models, the worst-case scenario has been averted because I think Ontarians uh, embrace uh, virtually all Ontarians embrace, you know, getting vaccinated and doing your part in terms of maintaining public health uh, measures that help to reduce transmission. So uh, it's uh, it's sobering when you look at that really high worst case scenario. Uh, but, you know, the range of scenarios is quite broad as, um, as those of uh, of your listeners who have actually looked at the graph. Uh, and as you point out, we may be able to stay steady. We've seen you know, I think in the last few weeks, a bit of a bulge that happened likely towards the early part of August, uh, that up until today at least was showing some signs of, of sort of starting to flatten out. But we'll have to watch and see how that seven-day running average is. Right now it's at 728 new cases per day as a seven-day running average. Uh, and if we could keep it at that level and even go lower, that would be great. Kids are going back to school. Those under 12 cannot be vaccinated. And I'm not sure about the rate of those over 12, but it's uh, as great as the those of us who are older. Uh, yeah, we're, I mean, we've got fairly good vaccination rates in the 12 to sort of 18-year-old age group, but you're right, they're nowhere near what we see, of course, particularly with older individuals. Um, schools are, are really um, a tough thing to sort out. It's a very divisive issue. There are those who line up saying schools are going to be the source of all the problem, and that's possible to see. But there's a lot of evidence that's emerging around the world that although schools can be challenging with measures that are put into place to control those numbers, especially vaccinating staff and teachers who go, especially to elementary schools where you can't vaccinate those children at the moment, uh, that will really help to temper things. So, again, everybody has to do their part. We have to maintain those public health measures. And if you're not vaccinated, and I would add that the introduction of vaccine passports is going to drive up vaccination numbers. It has done that in almost every country it's been introduced. According to the modeling, in addition to upping our vaccination numbers, we also have to reduce our contacts. So I'd like a little more clarity on that. Uh, do you know, are, are people almost up to their normal contacts? Like how, what, what are we supposed to do? Right. So when we uh, when we put out the model yesterday uh, in in the things that happened, we talked about uh, sort of trying to keep uh, you know rates of seventy uh, percent of pre pandemic levels, and we said that if we if we were able to reduce uh, contacts to 70% of the pre-pandemic levels, we would have pretty good control amongst all the age groups. There's a, there's a nice graph that's, uh, that's in the report yesterday. Um, if we go above that, above 80% of pre-pandemic levels with contacts, then we're going to see that really large jump in numbers. So it's really a matter, I, I, you know, I, I can say that there was a lot of discussion about trying to go back to a stage two um, where we were at sort of in, uh, you know, June, July, before we went to stage three. Uh, that would probably have that effect. But right now, I think we're, we're kind of really, uh, I think, seeing and hoping that people are going to really uh, stick to what is essentially a, a very strict if uh, stage three, and maybe a lot of people still continuing to do a sort of stage two uh, kind of limitation. If we do that, that's going to have that synergistic effect with that rising vaccine uptake uh, to really keep this wave dampened down. And my last point is, 
We know that 83% of people in Ontario have taken a first dose that are eligible for vaccine. We know that over 95% of people who take a first dose will take a second dose. So that means that's where we're going to hit. And that's just around 2% lower than the 85% level that table really issued as a, as a sort of threshold that we'd like to meet. Dr. Gerald Evans, an infectious diseases expert, as well as member of the Ontario Science Advisory Table. Ontario optometrists withdrew their services Wednesday for OHIP-covered patients 65 and older and 19 and under. They've been asking the government for months to increase the reimbursement of the fee for these patients from $45 to 80 To give you some perspective, $45 is only $5 more than what optometrists were reimbursed back in 1989. Talks broke down between the Ontario Association of Optometrists and Ford Government, but not before Health Minister Christine Elliott revealed the province has offered $39 million in back pay and nearly 8.5% increase to the service rebate. For perspective and guidance to patients, Dr. Ritesh Patel joined Jane. On our end uh, of the spectrum, we just want to continue the care that we've been able to provide for Ontarians for uh, many years, many decades. Um, And unfortunately, uh, this is kind of what 30 years of neglect uh, from the government kind of ends up being, where it's um, unfortunately just not sustainable uh, for the future of Ontarians and the future of uh, of optometrists. So somehow finding a way for us to, you know, continue the care that we have been fortunate enough to be able to provide is uh, the solution that we're looking for. Now, obviously, you want to get back to the table, get back to bargaining, not you personally, but your representatives. Is there any indication that that might happen sooner rather than later? Yeah. So, you know, we've we've been at the table uh, and that's kind of the unfortunate thing where, uh, you know, again, for 30 years, we've pretty much been at that table uh, open and willing and, and able to, to wanting to speak to the government, uh, obviously from, from uh, various parties. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately in this scenario where uh, they've, they've walked away, um, you know, we're patiently waiting at that table uh, and open and willing to be able to talk to them as well. Um, as for timelines, it's, uh, you know, of course, difficult to be able to, to predict those, but uh, we're hoping uh, for the sake of Ontarians, that the, the government comes to their senses and uh, it's over before uh, before it has to continue on for a l- lengthy period of time. So what are your collective thoughts on Minister Elliott's uh, response? $39 million in back pay and an 8.4% increase to the service rebate. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a lovely spin on some of the numbers, right? Because, um, you know, it can look like a very large number, the $39 million. Um, I think what, what stands out to, to me and, and hopefully for Ontarians as well is, uh, you know, the fact that if they're, if they're trying to provide this, uh, number as back pay, I, it pretty much tells out the, the story we've been saying where, you know, they've been under, we've been underfunded for a very long time and, and here's what it is. Um, you know, it's the equivalent of putting a, uh, using a water bottle to put out a fire, uh, and just not realistic. Now, unfortunately, uh, you know, if we look back on the last 10 years for what the government is saying that this is back pay for, uh, optometrists have performed nearly 34 million OHIP exams. Um, so the equivalent of this is essentially a dollar per exam of back pay for the last 10 years. Ah. The unfortunate thing is that it does nothing for uh, to actually allow for the sustainability for the future. So they're saying that, OK, well, we'll back pay you this, uh, this uh, you know, dollar per exam. Uh, and the 8% still leaves us 60% below 
the next lowest province, which is Manitoba in terms of funding. So if you compare us uh, to Manitoba, we're currently at least 70% below them. And they're the next lowest. They're the, the lowest uh, besides us in the, in, the, in the country. And you have governments such as in Alberta who are essentially uh, nearly triple the amount of funding that they've provided for eye care versus what Ontario is. So, you know, the 8% is, uh, is you know, unfortunately, you know, uh, minimal in terms of really a drop in the bucket when it compares to what the gap is, which is nearly 70%. Do you think ultimately uh, these services for the 65 plus and the under 19 um, might end up being delisted from OHIP? Your guess would be as good as mine, but the way I look at it is the government does have a uh, have the responsibility of taking care of these patients. What we'd like to be able to see is the government step up to what they've promised Ontarians um, and what they and on, what Ontarians deserve, than to to see those uh, delisted. But at the end of the day, we'll we'll see how those discussions uh, unfold. And all we're looking for is something where the government is willing to come to the table and uh, understands the future and the sustainability of eye care in Ontario. So we just ask uh, for your listeners to go to saveeyecare.ca um, and let your MPP know there's over, already over 170,000 signatures there. So they're hearing. They're hearing it from us, but more importantly, they're hearing it from you. So uh, I very much appreciate the time to be able to convey the message from the OAO um, so that we're able to uh, make sure we get the facts straight. Ontario optometrist, Dr. Ritesh Patel. I'm Bob Comsick, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Cindy in Niagara weighed in on the risks posed by students returning to class. Both my grandkids are going back into class. They are 9 and 11, and I'm terrified, quite frankly, because I work in a long-term care setting. And I know what goes on when it comes to cleaning. At first, everybody's diligent, diligent, diligent. After a couple of weeks, it gets tiring doing the same old thing. I'm afraid we're going to get lax. I'm, I'm scared they're going to end up getting COVID mm-hmm. and being really sick, hospitalized. I mean, who knows? We don't know. Barry in North York plans to vote green, but called to talk about his impressions of NDP leader Jugmeet Singh. I would be more inclined to um, vote NDP more than ever before my first time in my life because the more I hear this guy, the more he seems genuine, honest, which is really difficult to find in politics, I think, and and just a down-to-earth guy that cares about people. That's if there are only three parties. But there are. Brian in Toronto calling with his impressions of Justin Trudeau as a liberal leader seeks to be re-elected. I think that what's happening here, people are just getting a little tired of Trudeau's uh, pretty boy tactics. Everything is, he's very, he's got great comments, but very little action. All he's done was given CERB money out to people that didn't deserve it. We have a deficit that our great-grandchildren will be paying for, and I think it's time for a change. Beverly and Milton called about Ontario's overworked and unappreciated ICU nurses. Originally, the nurses voted for uh, 12-hour shifts 
and their reasoning was the uh, uh, patient uh, care would be a lot better. You know, I agree if that's the way you feel. However, with technology the way it is, I believe that patient care can be looked after, one with less time in the hospital for the nurses, two, you employ more nurses, cut back on the hours, employ more nurses, and instead of worrying about your wage, worry about pension, and worry about health care for the nurses. Diana in Toronto called with her thoughts on a provincial vaccine certificate. No, I don't need a certificate. I've been double vaccinated. I have my two little slips, and I can present those wherever I go. I would rather see them put the money towards uh, getting the uh, water to the Indigenous people, uh, I think, rather than uh, running around spending millions on a slip that's telling them that we've, we've had our, our um, you know, sl- shots. All we need is a little card. We present it where we go. We've been vaccinated. And now... Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Joanne in Toronto, who also called about vaccine passports. I'm more in favor of a passport for travel, international travel or interprovincial travel. I think the money could be better spent uh, protecting ourselves and other people in other countries. I think having a certificate would be a good idea. However, there are too many other issues that get in the way, such as someone at the door having to screen, uh, those people who have medical issues. It's the money issue and it's the ethical issues. If, if I was to travel, I would want to know if I'm on a plane that spent, I spent a thousand dollars for the ticket. I'm not going to be able to get off, but if I walk into a restaurant and I'm uncomfortable, I can walk away from a $30 lunch. Mm -hmm. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.